This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, Courageous Church is a kingdom-minded culture with seven values that inform our practices. And today we want to talk about being rooted and grounded in the gospel. You see, as Christians, we're committed to knowing and sharing the good news. Or I like to refer to it as know and tell. In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says that after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee. Jesus came. Everything changes when Jesus comes. When Jesus came into my life, when Jesus came into your life, if Jesus would come today, everything will change. And Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom called people to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ and to begin a new life. Jesus came, we know from the New Testament, to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3.8 to disarm the spiritual rulers and authorities, Colossians 2.15. He came to destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, Hebrews 2.14. And the result of Christ's victory is that he's seated on his rightful throne. And the whole cosmos is liberated from the tyrannical and destructive ruler. Humanity is now delivered from the power of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Colossians 1.13 This has already been done. Past tense. We're not waiting for this. This is a settled reality. Now Paul the Apostle, the most prolific writer in the New Testament, he wrote 13 or maybe 14 of the 27 New Testament books, spoke of the mystery of faith in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9. His description of the gospel. Many religions have attempted to use the mystery of faith to define one of their dogmas, one of their doctrines. But leaving no doubt to his meaning, Paul expounded in 1 Timothy 3.16. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit he was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and he was taken to heaven in glory. In so doing, Paul either created or repeated a first century hymn or doxology. In fact, if you look at most of our Bibles, you will see that this, this, this statement is, is written in a script that would indicate it's a poem or a song, a song of the early church. Let me break it down for you and I'll put a slide up that'll help. He was manifested in the flesh. That's Christ's incarnation. He was vindicated by the Spirit, at least in three ways, at Christ's baptism. The Holy Spirit fell on Jesus Christ and John said, the one who sent me to baptize says, the one you see the Holy Spirit fall on and remain, that's the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then his signs and wonders how Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed and afflicted of the devil because God was with him. 
and then his resurrection. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken or make alive your mortal bodies. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. So this is the vindication by the Holy Spirit. And then he was seen by angels. We know it to be true. These are Christ's appearances at his birth and at his resurrection. At his birth, it was angels that announced to the shepherds that he has come. And it's at his resurrection when the troubled, confused, beaten disciples went to the tomb and they saw two angelic beings who said, why are you searching for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Go tell the others. And then he was proclaimed among the nations. That's Christ's gospel. And then he was believed on in the world. That's believers receiving the gospel, becoming the church. And then he was taken up into glory. That's Christ's ascension. So through the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, Saul being his Hebrew name, Paul, as we know him frequently, the apostle, that's his Latin or Greek name. See, he was a Hellenistic Jew. And as he shared his faith further into the Gentile world, it makes sense that he used, and those who wrote his, of his travels referred to him as Paul, using his Roman name. Through his conversion, we can too experience and then tell others the good news. Now let's break it down a little bit. We want to know and we want to tell, right? So to know, so to know the gospel, the gospel. Gospel comes from an old English word. You've heard it before, Godspell. It simply means a good message or the good news. But it's in the Greek language that we get more understanding and actual inference toward not just knowing, but sharing the faith. The Greek word, euangelion, it's translated evangel but it means good news. And another word you've, you're familiar with, euangelos, bringing good news, or to announce. The word evangelism. And what's so exciting about these two words, evangel and evangelism, is notice the term that is embedded in both. The term angel, messenger. That's right. We're bringing the good news, the message. And so when we experience the good news that was experienced by Saul of Tarsus, and when we consider his proclamations and clarifications throughout the New Testament, we too will experience and share it with others. We will know and tell. So let's go to Acts chapter 9 and see how it works. Saul, he's still breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, and he went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around about him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. Saul's conversion is one of the great stories of human history. It is one of the most significant evidences of the resurrection that you and I can offer. Many in Christendom have followed, imitated Paul's life and his example. In fact, he said in 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. His conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 9. It's repeated under oath when arrested in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 22 and recounted again before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. He talks further about it in Philippians chapter 3. He alludes to it in Galatians chapter 1. The New Testament is filled with this story of conversion that is unbelievable. By birth, he's a Jew. By conviction, he's a Pharisee. 
He says it's the strictest sect of our religion. By citizenship, he's Roman. By education, he's Greek. And by God's grace, he becomes a Christian. He's a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher. But he was the great persecutor of the Christian church. He inherited from his father the Jewish tradition and Roman citizenship. His father was himself a Pharisee. Paul says in Acts 23, 6, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. In fact, Paul was probably sent from Tarsus when he was 13 years of age, when he became a son of the law, to Jerusalem to study. We know that he studied under the renowned Jewish teacher Gamaliel. Saul spent years memorizing the Old Testament, and he became an expert in the law. When introduced to the Hellenistic Jew, Stephen, Saul is agitated. Agitated by a man who is effectively leading other Jews to Christ and who has emerged as a leader in the infant Christian church at Jerusalem. Stephen is apprehended. He's brought before the Sanhedrin council and he speaks in his own defense. As he does, all observe him. They see Stephen's face shining as the face of an angel. He accused them of killing the prophets, resisting the Holy Spirit, and killing Jesus Christ. And then Stephen looked up, Acts 7 tells us, and he saw the glory of God. And he said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When he said this, the crowd was incensed, and they rushed upon him, and they cast him out of Jerusalem and they stoned him to death. And as they did, Stephen called on God. And he said this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he cried out, Lord, don't charge this sin against them. And he died. I wonder what it would have been like to have been there. We could ask Saul of Tarsus. Because Acts 7.58 and Acts 8.1 tells us this, the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul was consenting to his death. You see, Saul was the leader of a movement, a movement to stamp out Christianity. He says in Acts 26, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, they put many of the Lord's people in prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. The reality is he dedicated his life to eradicating Christianity from the face of the earth. Sounds like somebody we had a witness to, huh? Probably a difficult person to share the good news with, wouldn't you say? He's a man of reputation, and so he goes to the high priest, not just to the council, but he goes to the high priest and he requests letters of authority so that he can apprehend believers of the way, one of the titles of the early church in Damascus, which is a six-day walk from Jerusalem. So he, with his band of, uh, of others that will go to apprehend, they're going to walk to Damascus. And nearly there, a light from heaven shone round about him. Acts 22 tells us it was noon. And Acts 26 says that the light that he saw was brighter than the noonday sun. Others heard a voice, and they were stunned. But Saul saw Jesus. He saw him, and he heard him. In fact, Ananias, who will pray for Saul several days later, says to him in verse 17, Jesus appeared to you on the road. In 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul is telling us about the resurrection of Christ from the dead and saying it's the foundation of the Christian faith. And he says Jesus, after He rose, appeared to Peter. And then He appeared to the twelve. And then He appeared to 500 individuals at one time. And then He appeared to James. And then in verse 8 He says this, And last of all, He appeared to me. Saul saw Jesus and he heard Him. I just say, thank God for Stephen's prayer. Lord, don't hold this sin against them and against him. And so Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul responds, who are you, Lord? Or maybe Saul said, who are you, Lord? Lord, is that you? And Jesus answers, I am Jesus whom you persecute. You see, actually, when we persecute God's people, we're persecuting him. But the real issue here is salvation. What Jesus is really saying is, Saul, why are you rejecting me? And maybe under the sound of my voice today is someone who can relate to that. The rejection of God for whatever reason. Why are you rejecting me, Saul? The heart of the matter is repenting and receiving Christ. The focus really isn't sin here. If Jesus could have said something to Saul, he might have said something like, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life. But they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me so that you can have life. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does that mean? When you sin, you're earning something. You're earning death. And someone's going to die. But Jesus paid it all. He paid it in full. So when you trust Jesus, you don't have to pay. His salvation is full and complete. The crowds followed Jesus, and at one time they came to Him and they said, Lord... Jesus, what, do, what work do we need to do? What does God require? Have you ever asked that question? God, what do you want from me? What do you require of us? What, do I, what must I do? Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. In our rational minds, we say that's too simple. But that's the word of the Lord. Again, Saul says, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now get up, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a service, a servant and a witness of what you've seen and will see of me and I will rescue you from your own people and the Gentiles and I'm going to send you to them. Listen to what the purpose is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's the kingdom of God. So that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me, faith in Jesus. That's Acts 26, verse 15. So Saul acknowledges Jesus as Lord. You say, how could he do that? How could he do that? He knew the gospel. Have you thought about it? He knew the gospel. He was probably aware of this Christian sex teaching. I imagine he had studied it. I bet he knew it inside and out. And he rejected it. And he rejected Jesus. He later says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, If our gospel is veiled, or if it is hid, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Paul couldn't believe. He had blinders on. And we try to witness and share our faith with people, and we can't figure out why it's not working, and we think it's us. Or we want to blame God. But you've got to realize the God of this age is hiding the gospel from people and we need spiritual breakthrough. Of course, we know he was familiar with Stephen's preaching. 
In Saul's presence, Stephen, before the council, recounted Jewish prophetic history from Abraham to Joseph to Moses to Joshua to King David to King Solomon to Jesus Christ. He'd heard the gospel. He simply had rejected it. And so the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And so Saul arose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he didn't eat or drink. He fasted. That's odd. He fasted. Saul is shattered. He's broken. Everything he believes in, everything he's lived for, it's gone. Later he writes in Philippians 3, verse 8 through 10, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this. Not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him. We'll quickly go further in chapter 9. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord says to him in a vision, and Ananias says, here I am, Lord. And the Lord says, rise and go to Straight Street and go to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. What? He's fasting and he's praying? For he's seeing a man in a vision and he's seeing a vision? Ananias coming to him to lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Lord, Ananias argues, Jesus stops him. He said, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went, and he laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul. Wait a minute. Brother? How could Saul be a brother? Jesus came and appeared to you, and he sent me that you might be, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. You've got to be a believer to be filled with the Holy Spirit, don't you? And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he arose and he was baptized. Baptized? I thought you needed to be leave to be baptized. Believe and ba be baptized and you'll be saved, it says in Mark 16. And so then Saul stayed in Damascus for several days and immediately he attended the local Bible study so that he could learn the Christianese. Immediately he enrolled in the local Christian college and seminary. No, it says immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Can you imagine the transformation that has taken place? And all who heard him were amazed, saying, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all who called on his name? And he's come here to apprehend us. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ doesn't mean that people get saved because you prove something. Trust me. I mean, you can really deliver a direct message and people can still reject it. But what Saul did is he submitted himself to the Lordship of Christ. He saw the Lord, he heard the Lord, and he believed. And that's it. It's done. That's the good news. It's over. He's redeemed, renewed, restored, and recommissioned now. And that's what will happen for you today. If you came here wondering, I wonder... If there's a God in heaven, I wonder if he has a plan for my life. You can be redeemed, renewed, restored, and recommissioned now. And so Paul gravely warns the Galatians where we started this morning. He reminds them that the, the, the gospel is a simple formula. Faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing equals eternal life. If you, like me, have attended church, any number of churches 
or experiences. Where there was a condition added to salvation, that's not the gospel. Or if you've attended a church where they say that their teachings are the gospel, that's not the gospel. Let's let the gospel define itself. He says in Galatians 1, verse 11, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, let me remind you, dear brothers, of the good news, the gospel that I preached to you. You welcomed it then and you still stand from it. If this is the good news that saves you, and if, if you continue in the good news that I told you, he says, I passed on to you that which was most important and what has also been passed on to me. And here it is. What's most important? This is the gospel. This is the message. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Old Testament scriptures have said. Not the New Testament. It's the Old Testament. He's citing the law and the prophets. Saul is saying, we see it all right there in the Old Covenant. He says, I studied it. I memorized it. I know it. And I rejected him. And now I've received him. And that's all you need to do. He says in Galatians 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one will boast. No one will say, this is what I did. Everyone who stands in his presence will say, this is what he did. Yeah. One of the greatest soul-winning messages as you're sharing with someone is, if you were to stand before God today, what would you say to Him? Why should He let you into His heaven? Because you will quickly learn what they believe will promote eternal life, what is necessitated. And so often we'll see that it's by works of righteousness instead of by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So let me wrap it up. The gospel is simply the announcement that Israel's king and Messiah has accomplished what he came to accomplish. Jesus has defeated sin and death and evil through his sinless life. His substitutionary atoning death on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. And Jesus now rules the kingdom. And by grace alone, through the Holy Spirit's power, people who trust in Christ are redeemed and swept into his glorious kingdom. This redeemed people become a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation who exists to know Jesus and to make him known, to know and to tell, to share with others. That's the gospel. That's the message. You see, the real battle is between two economies, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this present evil world, which is led by the prince of darkness. You've heard of him before. He's called Satan. He's called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's called the adversary of the brethren. He's called the devil. You say, no, Jim, you're not going to throw that devil thing at me. It's much more sinister than that. His real name is Lucifer. He was an angel in the presence of God that fell because of pride. His name means light bearer. And the word says he is the prince, not of light, but of darkness. And so in Jesus, the kingdom has come and is still coming. It'll be consummated at his second coming. Thus, the church today is living in this tension between two realities, the already and the not yet. 
I was influenced by John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard, and also George Eldon Ladd. In fact, uh, the church that uh, promotes and began Alpha also is promoted in the earth. This is a very popular viewpoint, but basically it's the already not yet eschatology of the New Testament. Already the kingdom has come, but it is not yet fully manifested, and we all can understand that. A simple analogy, and I'll I'll give this to you quickly, is the tension that we have. The distinction between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. Historians generally agree that World War II was decided on the banks of Normandy on June 6, 1944. A fatal blow was dealt to Germany that day, which rendered its defeat inevitable, but it took another year for Germany to surrender on V-Day. V stands for victory. Between D-Day and V-Day, the victory Allied forces had already won in principle was not yet manifested as an actual fact. And so this captures the dynamic of the New Testament as well because the the D-Day for the kingdom took place when Jesus culminated his work on the cross, died, and rose from the dead. At that time, the powers of darkness were dealt a fatal blow and they were in principle defeated. Do you agree? That's what the Bible teaches. And yet, Christ's victories over these powers won't be fully manifested until V-Day. What's V-Day? It's the second coming of Christ when he fully establishes his kingdom. Up till now, where he has believers who believe, who are going out taking the land, who look out and see the, we- the fields white unto harvest, make a difference. Turn cities right side up. But this tension going on. So how does this gospel work? Let's close it. How does it work? I think the illustration in Acts 16 is amazing. Paul and Silas are apprehended and they're in jail. They're praying and singing hymns to God around midnight. And the other prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a massive earthquake. And the prison was shaken to its foundations. And all the doors immediately flew open and all of the chains fell off every prisoner. And the jailer woke up and he saw that the doors were open and he assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword and he's about to take his life. And, and Saul shouts to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and he ran into the dungeon and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Anybody ever ask that question? What do I need to do? And they replied, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. That simple. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in the household. And even that hour of the night, he washed their wounds. And then everyone in the household was immediately baptized. Done. And he brought them into his house and he gave them a meal. And his entire household rejoiced. Saved. Baptized. Rejoicing. Why? Because they all believed in God. So Paul says it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to this hope of eternal life. Paul repented. He turned from evil to good. He placed his faith in the Redeemer, the Savior of the world, Jesus. And then he began announcing the kingdom, the good news, the kingdom of God, the reign of God in the earth. A kingdom led by Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. As Saul, he preached to the Jews, as Paul to the Gentiles. And Peter tells us there's salvation in no other. You come to the right place. That's not courageous church. You come to Jesus. Because he's able to save to the nth degree anyone who comes believing. So will you just close your eyes with me for a minute? And let's think about how this works. Paul's experience is dramatic, profound, 
And he spends the New Testament clarifying it for us. And he tells us in Romans 10, here's the simple thing you need to do. He says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Up till now, we've, we've, we've been denying that. He's not Lord. He's not Lord of my life. And we doubt whether he's even a historical figure. We need to come to terms with that. Jesus did live and die and raise. I need to believe in my heart God raised him from the dead, but I need to confess him as Lord. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the message. If you haven't believed it yet, believe it today. Confess it. And then what about the second part for those of us that have already believed it? What about becoming a messenger? The message and the messenger. He goes on to say in verse 14, Romans 10, How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That's you and me. We've experienced, and now we are going to share. We're going to go and tell. Here's what Jesus said would be the final sign of his coming. He said, and this good news, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't know about you, but I've dedicated my life to sharing the message. I've been coming to Utah since the early 80s. And I did something different on Friday when I drove up that I've ever done before. I was driving up to come to Courageous Church to speak to you, to share God's word. But as I passed through St. George, I stopped. I stopped the music, and I stopped the thinking, and I said, Father, I'm driving up to Salt Lake City to go to Courageous Church. I'm bringing the message, and I hope someone will be changed by it. But between here and Salt Lake City, there are tens of thousands of people. And I believe those people, many of them, are lost and lonely. And I'm convinced that some of them might be looking for you. Somewhere out here, maybe on a farm or a ranch or in one of these little towns or as we get into the larger communities along the Wasatch Front, I believe there are people that have been crying out to you, saying, God, are you real? Help me. And I said, God, I don't want to just go to Salt Lake to share a message. I want to be available to you when I come to Salt Lake. Every step of the way, would you tell me to get off in an exit? Would you tell me to pull over and talk to somebody? Would you arrange a divine appointment with someone who's calling out to you? Because I want to be used by you. I live in Las Vegas, and I am in North Las Vegas, and I look out over the lights, and I started praying last week, God, why am I alive? Why am I here? There's somebody out there that needs you. I want to help them find you. How can I get to them? How can we reach them? I don't want to be busy. I don't want to be about my business. I want to do your business. 
Arrange divine appointments for us. You're starting Alpha. Don't just have the meeting and ask them to come. Go out and find them. Find them. Because they're crying out all over this valley. They're crying out to God. And they don't need religion. They need Jesus. Thank you for listening today. To find out more information about our church, including ways you can give, please visit us at CourageousChurch.com.